That's probably the hardest thing for all of us is unlearning. It's much easier to develop somebody athletically who has never played a particular sport than one that has, you know, for instance, if you're a golfer and you, you shoot in, in 85 and you've been golfing for 10 years, you'll, you'll probably never be much better. Yeah, because you have to you have to unlearn the the, the things you're doing wrong and, and then relearn. It's a, it's a double process. And I think it's the same same way with leadership. Um, we'll be in Third John, so if you want to just turn there, and I'm going to uh, I have the coveted after meal session. So, <laughs> and I I really do want to hear your thoughts about this, and and we, we'll we'll get a panel discussion going again like we did a while ago. Uh, questions about leadership styles. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what does, a, what does healthy leadership look like and then what does toxic uh, leadership look like. Uh, and I want to just say at the outset that what I'm going to say is, is certainly not exhaustive. I'm taking one case study in scripture and, and looking at this one case study and extracting some principles uh, on this one case study. So this is not exhaustive. I'm um, just taking two two individuals in the Bible that happen to provide a, an incredible contrast when it comes to leadership style, and uh, th- then there's a couple ways by which I think we can apply it. You know, number one, and here's why I really don't want to apply it, although I think this will be the most ready way that we apply it. I don't, I don't, I don't want you to 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 hear this and say, "Oh yeah, I had a leader like that." Okay, and and that's going to naturally happen because we all have. Oh, and, and not always, not always in, in the uh, church sphere. Sometimes it was, you know, working um, in the in the secular field. But we we've all dealt with obnoxious people, and we've all dealt with people that are fleshly in their leadership, and 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 we've all had good leaders. We've all had good mentors. See, I was thinking about what Carrie just said, um, describing you know, some of the hurts maybe in this room, and then what Scott. Uh, talked about with inheriting the church and all that went on and how he was abused by that uh, former pastor just emotionally and all those things. Uh, That's not my story. You know, it's not to say that I've never been in situations where I felt that I was taken advantage of, but I'll be honest with you, I I don't feel like I've I've had bad experiences. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've seen, and I can appreciate what these men are saying, but I've not, I've not had the level of, of hurt and um, betrayal or whatever, you know, that Scott described uh, a moment ago. Maybe some of you have. That doesn't mean that I can't learn from other people's experiences and make sure that I'm not modeling that kind of behavior because it's in all of us. You know, we're all flesh. We, we all have egos. Uh, each one of us can 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 uh, morph into people we don't want to be. So let's let's see what the Bible has to say about these two men and see if we can learn something from it. Okay, Third John uh, is uh, familiar from for most of us that uh, handle the Word of God. Let's look at verse one. The elder uh, John unto the well beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Just at the outset, let me just say that the, the way that I want us to look at 3 John is I want us to look at it from the standpoint of that first hermeneutic, which is author audience. So I really want us to, to try to go back into a first century mindset and as, as, as much as we can, and, and let's, let's think about the way by which God is using John to nurture Gaius. 
to bring him along. Let's look at that. Uh, I've done I've done this in the book of Second Timothy for the entire book. You know how did Paul nurture and mentor Timothy? So let's look at, for at least for eight verses. Let's let's look how how did John nurture, encourage, lead Gaius? Uh, because we all uh, have people in our ministry, and, and and to me that's the essence of teaching ministry. The essence of teaching ministry is. You uh, mentoring, discipling men. I mean, to me, that's the essence of ministry, is, is the men in this room discipling men, you know, leading leaders. And as your ministry grows, you know, the, the big rocks of your ministry become more clear. And so when I went to Harvest Baptist Church back in 1996, I was the pastor. I was the assistant pastor. I was the secretary. I was the janitor. I was the Christian school administrator. I was the, you know, whatever we started, that's who I was, the youth pastor. Uh, and then as the church grew, I'm giving part of my job away every year, parts of my job that I loved. I loved caring for the lawn. I loved, you know, the parts of the cleaning part of it, particular about certain things. I loved the youth pastorate. I loved teaching English in our Christian school. I loved, I mean, the things I love to do. But, you know, in a growing ministry, you're giving your job away and you're doing those things that only you can do. So as your ministry grows, for I speak to, I, I know that m- most of you maybe don't pastor a, a, a larger church, but if you do, you know, you do the things that only you can do. You know, the, the one rule of de- delegation is, you know, just kind of delegate all the things that that um, that you don't want to do, and that's that's not that's not good delegation. Delegation is delegate everything you can. Delegate every possible thing you can delegate. So the only thing, the only thing that's left is what what only you can do. What only you can do. So when the deacon board was talking to me about going to Faith Baptist, they they said, "Well, what do you see as as your role?" One of the questions, the interview questions, "What do you see as your role as the pastor of Faith Baptist Church?" I said, "I see my role as threefold." I said, "I'll I'll do I'll do the primary teaching and preaching." The ministry. So I'll be the, the scriptural voice primarily, not that others don't. We have a couple of men in the room uh, and they help me, but uh, I'll, I'll primarily do the teaching and preaching at, at Faith Baptist Church. Number two, you know, I believe I'm the curator of the vision. Now, obviously it's God's vision, but I feel like it's my job to cast vision. And so I, I'll cast vision. And number three, I'll invest in our leaders. But if you're looking for somebody that's going to be a little house on the prairie, that I'm going to have to visit everyone at the hospital, and I'm going to have to counsel everybody, and I'm going to, then you're asking for somebody to pastor a church of 100. But we're not a church of 100. And so you're asking for something unrealistic. So I, I'm going to tell you this is what I can do now. Th- that said, this church ought to have a dynamic pastoral presence in visiting people in the hospital. I have a dynamic presence as far as being there and counseling people. And these men that are here with me will tell you, I think we've done a great job with that, okay? But it doesn't have to be me. I don't have to be the hero at the hospital. I don't have to be the hero in the counseling room. I don't have to, I I, want to do what I can do best and then let these other men and women do what they do best. Um, And I don't know how I got on that, but uh, so when we look at 3 John, uh, the book of 3 John, I want to show you two contrasting leaders and see where you fit. And we probably all fit as an amalgam of, of the two. Look at, look at verse one again. 
and let's talk about John. Rather than read it and go back to it, let's just jump into it for sake of time. So the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. So two times in one verse, John has confirmed his love to Gaius. You're my well-beloved. I love him in the truth. Look at verse two, beloved. So now three times in one and a half verses, he's confirmed his love. Look at verse five, beloved. So here's my first principle about leadership and mentoring, and especially leadership and mentoring in developing men in in your church. Number one, develop bona fide affectionate relationships. And I don't mean weird affection. You don't talk it about. Develop bona fide relationships. I think there's almost a, and I don't know where this has come from, but there's almost a, there's almost a reluctance to develop uh, true bona fide friendships in local churches among, it's almost like we've adopted this Nicolaitanism, you know, that we're, you know, we're not supposed to, you know, really show our real selves to people and we got to maintain a, a healthy distance and, you know, don't have close friends in the church. And no, I think as, as men, one of our, our you know, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm call, I don't call you no more servants, but I call you friends. And the capstone of Jesus' relationship in developing disciples was friendship. And, and John, in mentoring Gaius, wanted to be clear. He was clear in Third John. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's interesting that as Timothy was developing, or rather uh, Paul was developing Timothy in Second, uh, second Timothy, Timothy chapter 1, he said, you know, Timothy, you're my beloved son. We know that the primary purpose for which uh, Paul wrote 2 Timothy, at least the first two chapters, was to rebuke Timothy. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Onesiphorus, he was not ashamed. Study to show thyself a prudent God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Timothy, don't be ashamed. Timothy was growing timid. But before Paul ever rebuked Timothy, he confirmed his love. And I wonder if we could confirm our genuine love to be, that's what God does to us. We're accepted in the beloved. He loves us. And it's in that climate that change can optimally take place. And so I would say in mentorship, number one, let's make sure that we're developing bona fide uh, relationships. And you know what's interesting? The older mentor was not afraid to identify publicly with with his mentee. Yeah, I think sometimes what happens is we 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 want to we want to have our cake and eat it too. We we want to we want to develop people, but we don't really want to associate with them until we know that they're going to make us look good. And and and, and John did no such thing. He he's speaking. He said, "The elder unto the well beloved Gaius, whom I love." So he's writing to Gaius, but he understands the letter is also encyclical. He understands the letter's not only going to be read by Gaius as a personal letter, so he says, it's Gaius whom I love. So I'm speaking in the first, I'm writing to you, but I'm going to talk about you too. And when I talk about you publicly to others, I love that guy. I love that guy. I've invested in that guy. I'm not ashamed of that guy. You know, I, I, and that's what Paul, that meant so much to Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He said, Onesiphorus, he, he came to Rome when no one else stood with me. And my first answer, no man stood with me. All men forsook me. 
I pray God, it may not be laid to the charge, notwithstanding the Lord stood with me. But Onesiphorus, he came, he sought me out, he found me, he was not ashamed, he refreshed me. Boy, there's something about that public avowal. Are we willing to publicly avow the friendships we have? That's why I applaud you for coming to this, this, this conference and saying, listen, I, I, it doesn't make a difference what people think about me. I'm, I'm going to be a friend of my friends. I'm going to love the people that, and, 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 and have that spirit in your local church. You know, sometimes if we're not careful, we're, we're, we'll only really publicly embrace those that kind of make our party line look good. That's not love. Now, well, it is love. It's self-love but it's not authentic love. And so develop bona fide relationships. Number two, um, not only did they have a bona fide relationship, but I, I think an effective mentorship relationship will also have a shared orthodoxy. Uh, and so look at what it says again in verse one. The elder uh, unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love, and watch the qualifier, whom I love in the truth. And so what, what did John say was the basis of the relationship that he had with Gaius. The, the, the basis of the relationship was truth. And he was careful to qualify that from the very outset of the letter. And let me just say that that ought to be the basis for our relationships with the people that we're developing. That's not, and I'm all for, you know, trying to connect with people and find their avocation. And, you know, I, I have uh, this specialty coffee with this person. And I go golfing with this person and this guy, he's a bowler. And this guy, we try to go out and hunt turkey together and this guy. But if all you're ever doing is trying to find what they like and try to get involved in their, in their, in their hobby, you know, I think what, what John did is John said, listen, the basis of our relationship is the truth. You know, and we get, we, 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 we love each other according to a shared set, uh, a shared belief in a set of, in a set of core doctrine. And, and can I just say that even beyond the local church, shouldn't that be what is the basis for our love? Shouldn't it be the base? Shouldn't we as, as brethren that are serving God across this country and really across the world, shouldn't we be able to say that our love for each other is because, man, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe he came to this earth to save a fallen race. I believe he loved them so much they died upon a cross and was buried and rose again. And by people that, can, that affirm that, these are my friends. And people that say that this is the word of God and this is the sole rule for faith and practice, these are people that I can associate with and these are people that I can call my comrades and I love them in the truth. And so let's let the truth and not necessarily our, our preference du jour or our generational preference be the binding because if that's the binding, then we're only gonna have love that lasts a generation or love that lasts within a certain geographical setting. But when truth is, our, truth is the basis for our love, then we can have a real authentic and long lasting, even permanent love, one for the other. And the mentorship relation was based on a shared orthodoxy. I think really as American Christians, and this is my opinion, I think as American Christians, we are, um, we are suffering from our, from, our, from our own success. So you know, America would be called a Christian nation. Now you and I wouldn't call it that. But you'd say, well, what's the religion in America? Well, it's a Christianity. 
you know, we understand that we're a post-Christian nation. But I think because there's been a preponderance of Christian doctrine and a Judeo-Christian value in America, you know, we, we have options. As Americans, we have options. And even in our sub, our little small slice of Christianity that we call the independent Baptist movement, okay, we still, we have many options even within that slice. And so it's like if I'm traveling overseas and, 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 and I see somebody that, that, that is from America, like I feel an immediate camaraderie. I, I can hear them speaking English. I can see them wearing a, you know, a, a, I don't care what they're, I can, they can be, be wearing a Philadelphia Eagles hat. And I can't stand the Eagles. Okay? But you know what? If I see them in a foreign country, I'm like, yes! American! Football! A real sport! You know, this third world kick a ball around sport, right? So in that context, it's like, yeah, I am happy. I'm just happy you're American and we share a love for football. But you come to America, now I hate you. Okay, because you're an Eagles fan and I, along with the Lord Jesus, uh, I'm a Cowboys fan, okay? But you know what's funny? I could be a Cowboys fan and go to a Cowboys game and get mad at other Cowboys fans. Were well, you sitting in my seat? No, I'm not passing your beer down for you. You know, right? So the more we subdivide, the more we look more scrutinizing at each other, the more we factionalize. Instead of just embracing the fact that we all love football. I think I, I, I said in one place that, you know, if the gospel were ice cream, half the world has never tasted it. And we're arguing about our flavor. And we're arguing. So what we need to do is we need to base our relationships, and especially our mentor, mentorship teaching relationships, on a shared orthodoxy, a shared love for and commitment to the truth. All right, number three. Not only uh, bona fide relationships and then a shared orthodoxy, but, and this, and this, this uh, third one uh, really is um, uh, more of, a, of an inter internal checkpoint for yourself. L look at what it says in verse 2. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. One of my favorite verses of the Bible from a humorous standpoint. In other words, uh, you know, Gaius, I want you to be as healthy physically as you are spiritually. I mean, what, what would happen if God would grant that wish to some of us? You know, it would be like an ICU immediately. It's like, ah, some people have to buy a casket. Look at verse three. <laughs> I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that's in thee, even as thou walkest in truth. See the emphasis? I meant to read these verses before. Walking in truth, the emphasis on truth, uh, third party evidence, corroboration of the truth. Verse four, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth, those whom I've influenced. Okay, so here's the checkpoint. The checkpoint is, and this will help you to understand if you are a, uh, an effective uh, Bible mentor, okay? What gives you joy? Now be honest, just be, be, be painfully honest with yourself. What brings you joy in ministry? I think, I think many times what brings us joy in ministry are the things that make us look good. You know, what's the, what, what do we rejoice over? Well, we had this number. Boy, look what the offering was. Uh, boy, did you see what we built? You know, what gives us joy? 
And, and what, what John said is what gives me joy is when you are understanding the truth and when you're practicing it. In fact, matter of fact, he qualified it by saying, there is no greater joy. There is no greater joy than when I see the people that I have had influence over walking in the truth. I rejoice in the successes of others. That will tell you a lot about a person. What will tell you a lot about a person is are they, are they bent to rejoice in the successes of other people? And so I, I would ask you that question tonight. Is that your bent? Is, there, is that your predisposition? That you are bent to rejoice in the spiritual successes of other people? Or are you all constantly having to qualify other people's successes? Yeah, but shadow, you know, the, the shading you were talking about. Like, in, in other words, the, the implication when we, when we start going down that road is my church is the largest independent fundamental Baptist church in America that does it right. <laughs> there, are a lot of, there are a larger churches, but... And show me your ability to have genuine joy in the successes of other people that share the truth. That share the truth. And then I will show you a little bit about your capacity to be an effective biblical mentor. All right, number four. I would call that unselfish joy, by the way. Because too often our joy is selfish. Unselfish joy. So bona fide relationships, shared orthodoxy, unselfish joy. These are all marks of a biblical mentor. And then uh, lastly, just and this, I know this is surface, but look at verse five. Beloved, thou doest faithfully. So he's, he's commending him. He's encouraging him in, he's catching him doing what's right and, and fertilizing it. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. So apparently, Gaius, who lived at some other location, was receiving these itinerant preachers these, uh, the, these uh, messengers of the gospel, and he was exhibiting uh, Middle Eastern hospitality, allowing them to stay in his home and bringing them forward on their journey, taking care of their physical needs and providing lodging and a prophet's chamber, if you will, and food and, and perhaps some, some money to get onto the next location. And the Bible says in verse six, which have borne witness, so the people that stayed at Gaius' house the people whom he helped have now come back to where John is. So where was that? Ephesus or wherever he was. They come back to where John was. And they have testified to John about Gaius. And the Bible says in verse 6, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church. So this is a, a public corroboration, uh, testimony, secondhand praise of the, uh, of the, the Christianity the hospitality of Gaius, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort. In other words, these same itinerant preachers are going back out. And so keep on doing what you're doing, Gaius. Uh, thou shalt do well. Look at verse seven. Because, now let me talk about their motivation. Let me talk about why these gospel messengers went out in the first place. The ones you helped, the ones that I'm asking you to help again. The Bible says, because that for his namesake, okay, that's for Jesus, they're, they're, in other words, their hearts are in the right place. Their motives are right. Because that for his namesake, they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles, Gentile unbelievers, 
as was the custom in those days for any religious person to go out and, and expect to take a little bit of a, like a public alms giving and, and even collect money from even pagan worshipers. And what the, what the apostle Paul said and also what John said is we're not going to do that because we don't want unsaved people to get the idea that we're in it for the money. And so he didn't do that in Thessalonica and, and he was careful about that. And John is saying that here. Look at verse eight. Uh, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Now, how do I distill all of that into one principle? Because there's a lot there we could talk about, fertilizing, catching people, doing what's right, a lot of leadership principles. But he, here's, here's what, how I distilled it, verses five through eight. Okay, a biblical mentor is going to have a collaborative spirit. And let me, let, me, let me explain what I mean by that. A biblical mentor is going to have a collaborative spirit. And what I mean by that is he's, tr- he's constantly trying to fertilize symbiosis among people that believe the same things. He's constantly trying to fertilize a symbiotic spirit among people that, that are... So, so here's the way I look at it, okay? And, and this, is, this is true. In, in the space of 18 months, I had the opportunity to preach at the following places. Bob Jones, Pensacola, Heartland, West Coast, Hiles Anderson, Golden State, Crown, Notre Dame. No, 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 that one. (laughs) There was one other I can't remember. Now, listen. Never the twain shall meet. How did that happen? Okay, here's how that happened. I have absolutely no convictions. No, okay. Here's that, here's that, that happened. I don't, I don't make a, a big, I preach the Bible. And you know what every group wants? Every group wants the Bible. You know, who, you know who's in all those groups? Good people. Good people. You know who's in all those groups? Wacky people. You know who's in your church? Good people. You know who's in your church? Wacky people. Why can't we just use a little bit of common sense? They're not always going to do it the same way, but, you know, Carrie started this whole thing by saying, you know, some, some of us don't feel like we fit in. You know, when, when, when you find your identity in Christ... You fit in everywhere and you fit in nowhere. But it doesn't really make a difference either way. Yeah, I can fellowship with any believer. I can sit on a plane with an Assembly of God preacher and have warm, sweet fellowship. And I'm not getting into an argument about, you know, cessationist philosophy or doctrine. I'm just, we're going to share our common love for Christ. You know, I mean, there's a way to rejoice in and love each other according to the truth. And that's not to say within the context of a local church, we don't need to parse that more carefully. But that's where we need to do it. In the context of our local church. I'm not pastoring Bible colleges. And neither are you. I'm not pastoring Facebook. And neither are you. I'm not pastoring Twitter. And neither are you. We're pastoring our local churches. And so when I go and preach for Chris Tice, I'm going to find out where Chris Tice is at, I know he loves the truth. I know he loves the Bible. 
You know, if he does something a little bit differently than I, it's not my job to go in and try to fix that or even assume that it needs fixing. It's my job to go in and take that wide, expansive volume we call the Bible and preach it. And sometimes I got to lay low on an application and let that pastor take that text I preached and let him make that application to the lifeblood of the church. You know, it's a collaborative spirit. And, and what John is doing here is masterful. He's saying, Gaius, these guys spoke well of you. I wanted you to know they spoke well of you. I wanted you to know that our church spoke well of you. Gaius, I want you to know that, the, that the, you, what you did for them was good. He's, you know what he's doing? He's speaking well of the person that's not there. Can we learn to do that? Just learn to, to speak well of people that aren't in the room with you. Just make that a practice. It's so easy for us to get into the gossip and the Baptist politics and all. Stop. You know, we've all done it. You know, I'm not, I'm not you know, standing up here as the, as, as the example. I'm just saying that we just need to stop. There's so much better, so much better things to engage in our spiritual energy. As long as we try to foment it with each other. So, Pastor Skelly, now that you got that Bible college, what's, it, what's going on with that, huh? You know, how do people respond to that? Well, you know, I could tell you, but it wouldn't be good for me. So why can't we just celebrate in the fact that we're all kind of broken people? We all have fragile egos. We've all said things we shouldn't say. We've all gossiped. We're not the paragon of righteousness. Let's just repent, get it right, get gospel focused, train people, love people, and move on. And that, I think that was the heart of John. The same John that Brother Scott talked about. The same one that was a son of thunder that said, Jesus, we ought to call down fire and kill the Samaritan village. The same one whose mommy said, I want him to sit on the right hand or at least on the left hand. I mean, these were carnal, you know, me first people that God changed. So you know what God can do? He can take carnal, me first people and he can change them. And so John is the faithful mentor that we can emulate. All right, now real quickly, look at verse nine. We've all preached these verses, so I'm not gonna belabor it, but I, I do wanna give you a couple principles about a toxic style of leadership. Verse nine, I wrote unto the church. So in other words, I, I've covered these issues about hospitality, about gospel collaboration, about receiving these gospel messengers. You know, and it may be that Gaius was a member of the church that Diotrephes was leading. If Diotrephes was indeed the, the leader and if Gaius was in the same town, it may be that John had to write a church member about hospitality in that city because the church itself uh, under the, the, the evil leadership of Diotrephes wouldn't do its job. Whatever the case, the Bible says in verse 9, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, you know what's interesting? Diotrephes means nourished by Zeus. And the reason I say that is because Diotrephes is obviously a, a pastor of a local church. We've got to assume that at least he makes a profession of salvation and, and probably was saved. But you know what it tells me? It tells me he's a first-generation Christian. Okay, because Christian people don't name their kids Muhammad. 
Or back in Bible days, they wouldn't name them diatrophies. Nourished by Zeus. So here's a, here's a first century, or rather a first generation Christian who, who has risen to the place of, of leadership in a local church, but, but he's wielding his power in a very carnal way. Look at, look at verse 9. I wrote unto the church, but to atrophies, and, and here's the qualifier that, that we, it ought to leap out at us, who loveth to have the preeminence. And here's why I say that ought to leap out at us, because we don't have the prerogative to say that. That's why that ought to leap out at us, because this is a rare thing that we're seeing. We're seeing somebody's motives be exposed. We don't have that prerogative. Because we're not the word of God. We can't see in hearts. The word of God is quick and powerful. It discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. But we don't. Okay? So when the Bible gives us a little glimpse into someone's motives, that ought to leap out at us. Okay? So here's a man, Diotrephes. His, the reason he did what he does what he, in this passage is because he loved himself. He had to be first. That's what that means. He wanted to be, he had to be first. So the only possible way that we can apply this is to ourselves. Because I can't apply, I don't know your heart. So the only possible teaching I can get from this is, okay, Kurt, is this me sometimes? You know, I have to be known. People have to know I did it. People have to say to me, good sermon. People have to, you know, I've got to be first. My name's got to be on it. I mean, is that me? I, I think if we're, if we're honest, come, come on, guys. If we're honest, sometimes this is all of us. And boy, uh, that begins a really bad ball rolling down the hill when that becomes the, 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 the motivation. Because a, an ego-driven person will inevitably be com- competitive. And that's what ministry has become in 21st century. It's become a competition. Fastest growing, biggest, best, most, you know, most innovative. We use all these superlatives and comparing ourselves among ourselves and measuring themselves by themselves. We're not wise. Matter of fact, the Bible's not against comparison. But Bible comparisons are always for the purpose of being better in some spiritual area. For instance, here at the Church of Macedonia, they had less money than you, and they've given more money than you. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, come on. Ante up, Church of Corinth. Yeah, comparisons aren't wrong from the standpoint of, yeah, here's this small little widow. She gave too much. She gave more than all of you guys did. So Jesus used comparative but only in a sense of you can do more, not in the sense of you're better, I'm better, and I can rest on my laurels. And so ego, ego-driven causes somebody to be competitive. And But when you're competitive, you lose all equilibrium. That was Saul in the Old Testament. You lose all equilibrium. Your whole life now becomes about being number one again. I'm going to be... Uh, my song's going to be top of the charts again. It's going to be singing, Saul slain his tens of thousands. I'm going to take care of him. And people that should be your ally, and someone that should have been your best assistant pastor, now I got to get rid of him because he's getting too much attention. His class is growing. They're talking about him and they're talking, bragging about his sermon. 
I got to get rid of him. And now my whole ministry is sidetracked because now all that I think about is him. And I'm going to get him to trip up and I'm going to find him and get rid of That was Saul's whole ministry. And what happened then is Saul missed his whole purpose. His whole, Saul's whole purpose, according to 1 Samuel chapter 15, was God raised him up to take care of the Philistine problem. And guess where Saul died? In a battle against the Philistines. And when Saul died, the Philistines took over the whole country. And all the people ran for the hills. They ran to the other side of the Jordan River. Saul failed abysmally in his life's purpose because he got competitive and ego-driven and chased away the people that should have helped him fulfill his purpose. Man, it's just so sad. And you know what else happened? You know, through that whole process, Saul had a a decreasing valuation on on, on, on the presence of God and the word of God. Samuel was put at arm's length until it was way too late. Uh, late, the ark of God was all but forgotten. I mean, Saul just missed it because he got competitive. Uh, Ego-driven, competitive. Uh, Number three, a toxic leadership will resist correction. The Bible says, uh, wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth. I'm I'm sorry, uh, verse nine, he loveth at the preeminence among them, he receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his words which he doeth, praying against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he, neither doth he receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. But when people try to approach him, when people try to reason with him, when people try to tell him what the word of God is, even me, an apostle, when I've written a letter, he's rejected it. He, he cannot be, he's, he, he can do no wrong. He's the man of God. He can do no wrong. But if we're not careful, we're going to get into that ivory tower in our thinking. You know, that, that we speak ex cathedra. And nobody can tell us what to do. And we're the fount of all knowledge about everything. Decorations, you know, whatever. Whatever decision you make, we, we're, the, we're the expert on it. We know. Which is stupid. And yet when you're ego-driven... And competitive, you don't, you don't see yourself. The last person you can see, like a vampire, you don't see your own reflection. You just can't see it. And so here's a person that's ego-driven. He's competitive. He doesn't receive correction. Watch this. Number four, he's passive-aggressive with his words. How do ego-driven, competitive, non-correctable people deal with Controversy. Deal with potential rebuke. They deal with it passive aggressively. And he's not going to meet with John. He's not going to talk to John. He's not going to receive John's letter. He's not going to follow John's counsel. But you know what he's going to do? He's going to pray it about with malicious words. He's going to get his narrative to people before John can get there. He's not going to let John get there. He's not going to let other people read the letter. He's not going to have those gospel messengers come. They're not going to hear what those people testified about Gaius back at the home church. None of that. No, he's going to create his own narrative by being passive aggressive with his words. Can I just say this? Toxic leadership is gifted leadership. Generally, the the toxic leaders that, that you know or in your life are people that are gifted. They're gifted communicators. They have personality. They have personhood. They have influence. That's why the Apostle Paul said, listen, when I leave, 
When I leave, Ephesian elders, when I leave, I know. Let the, here, here's what I know. I know grievous wolves will enter in. Okay? So toxic leadership, it's inevitable. I know it's going to happen because it, it loves a vi- vacuum. Whatever there's a vacuum, leadership, there's somebody going to occupy that vacuum. But, but understand who these people are. They're people that don't spare the flock. They don't really care about people. Okay? And they're going to draw disciples out of themselves with their words. So they're going to be gifted people who know how to talk, who know how to create their narrative. They're going, to, they're, going to have, they're going to have people follow them, but even the people that follow them won't be served by them. They're people that they're just using for their own kingdom, empire, self-aggrandizement. That's ego-driven. And listen, we can all get there. Say, so who are you talking about? I'm talking about me. I'm talking about me. And that's the way you ought to look at it. Because we can all, we all have these seeds in us. And so uh, ego-driven, competitive, resists correction, passive-aggressive with his words, hyper-separated. Because once you create that island, you got to keep people off it. And the only people you're going to let on your island, <laughs> once you create your island... <laughs> You got to keep people off of it. <laughs> and what you do is you have a little ferry boat, but you make sure that you have somebody that you really trust that runs that ferry. And they bring people over to your island, you vet them out, and as long as they bow down to your image, you know, they can live on your island. Okay, but no one else, I'm not listening. I'm not letting you come. You're out. I'm hyper separated. And that's where this guy is. You know what happens when you live in a hyper-separated world where the only people that tell you what you want to hear? You become more delusional. Until finally, somebody that snuck on the boat, sneaked on the boat, you know, it was a stowaway, you know, came on the island and looked at you and you were naked and said, the emperor has no clothes on. And everyone knew it, but no one ever said it. And we live in our own little world of self-delusion. And, and that's where diatrophies was. And I wonder, you know, has toxic leadership philosophy begun to creep into your life? You know, are, are you believing your own narrative? You know, what in an honest moment would the people that are closest to you say? Would you be willing to hear? What would your wife say? What would your children say? What would your adult children say if you listened, if you asked? What would your church members say? What would your deacon board say if you listened and you asked? What would they say? I dare you to have that level of transparency and really ask. Because I think, by and large, nobody in this room is entirely a John. And I don't think, by and large, anyone in this room is entirely a diatrophies. But I think we can learn from both of them.